Would you please bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that we can come and worship you together this day, Lord. We thank you that you're present here among us. And we just ask that you would be lifted high, that you would be glorified through our singing, uh, through the preaching of your word. And God, we thank you that you promised that you'd be with us to the very end of the age. So Lord, we trust in you and we worship you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, welcome. It's good to see you all this, mor- uh, this evening. Good to see you all online this morning. <laughs> welcome. Glad you're joining us. Uh, thanks for coming out, too, uh, to, to kind of help spread out from first service. Um, I was getting a little bit full there, so I appreciate you guys who got my email today and, and came out tonight. So um, that's nice, it's, it's, and it's really nice having people here while I'm, while I'm preaching, so I'm not just preaching to just the camera anymore. <laughs> um, so this is the final week we are spending in Mark's gospel account. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, kind of sad a little bit, but also like, all right, man, that was a good, a good season going through this gospel account. Um, but we left off last week in Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 39 with the Roman centurion seeing Jesus cry out with a loud voice and breathe his last. And, and it says that, that seeing in this way that he breathed his last, this Roman centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly, this was the son of God. Which takes us back to the very beginning of Mark's gospel account. And, and we're, we're going to walk through and see how the whole driving message of the account is leading to this moment in chapter 15. So, so look with me uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is who Mark is revealing to us. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and this is made evident to us as readers multiple times throughout the account, as with the Roman centurion proclaiming it out loud for us. But it even began in the first chapter with the baptism of Jesus, where Mark tells us that John the Baptist was, was preparing the way for the Lord. And he's preparing people for the coming king, saying, make paths straight, repent and be baptized. And then also John was saying, one who is greater than I is coming. One whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And, and he gets baptized in Mark 1.10. And, and, and John the Baptist, you know, in, in preparation for Jesus coming, says, hey, I'm going to baptize with water. But when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here is Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the water. And we read, And when he came up out of the water, in Mark 1.10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So right in the first chapter of Mark's gospel account, the identity of Jesus is revealed as the triune God is put on display. So Father, Son, and Spirit. So God the Father is speaking to the Son and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, the God who was one in nature and three persons. One in three and three in one. And in this moment, we see them in perfect relationship with one another as the one God. 
And after this, Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And where Adam failed, Jesus overcame. Then Jesus begins his ministry, coming into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is this gospel? Gospel means good news. Mark, Mark 1.1, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Mark 1.15 says of the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, so what is this gospel? This gospel is Jesus, and with him is the kingdom of God. So, so what does this mean? Why has he come? First, to preach, and then we see to teach, and to heal, and to deliver from spiritual bondage, cat, bondage casting out these unclean spirits all while training up disciples. And then ultimately he tells his disciples in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is the gospel? It is the good news that Jesus has come. And as he says, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The long expected Messiah Savior and King, bringing the kingdom of heaven to the earth, inaugurating it here and now. But now we are learning from Jesus himself that he came in order to give his life as a ransom for many. And suddenly the good news of Jesus becomes far more somber than it was before. People need to be ransomed. And the cost is the life of Jesus. And he begins to tell his disciples again and again that this is going to happen. Mark records three instances that Jesus tells them specifically, he's going to die, he's going to be handed over, he's going to be crucified. And they didn't listen to him. And they didn't listen to him again and again and again, even when he said, and on the third day I'm going to rise. On the third day we'll rise. And last week we saw that he was indeed handed over and crucified. He was mocked, beaten, the crown of thorns was pressed into his head, and he was nailed to a cross. And last week, we looked at Psalm 22 to see how Jesus quoted from it while on the cross. And that the psalm was written a thousand years prior to his crucifixion. And it gives perfect words to his anguish, saying that they've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They cast lots for my garments. They mock me. They wag their heads at me. Again and again, the psalm is fulfilled in the event of the crucifixion. And now this week, I want us to look at the well-known passage of Isaiah 53, the passage that was written 700 years prior to the crucifixion, and yet prophesying perfectly the events of it, and more importantly, the reason for it. So turn with me in, in your Bibles, your devices to Isaiah 53, um, and as you turn there, I'm going to have Denise throw up the image that we threw up last week um, to show just how interconnected the scriptures are, and I, I want to show it again because it's just, it's just phenomenal. The, the Bible, there's no other book in the world like the Bible. It stands apart. And so this shows all of the interconnectedness of the scriptures. That's the Bible on a timeline, New and Old Testaments. And it's just interconnected as a body is, right? Like the nervous system of a body. And we saw last week that the heart of it is the cross. It's all pointing to this moment where God redeems the world through his son going to the cross. And so you should now have Isaiah 53 open. And we're actually, we're going to begin in verse 4. And we're going to see how Isaiah 53 is part of this interconnectedness with Mark chapter 15. 
We read, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Again, it's a pretty incredible spot-on description of what literally happened to Jesus. And we see in this account that it is all about him and what he has done. But let's not miss the fact that he has done it for us. For he so loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because remember, as Isaiah 53 continues in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one, in his own way. So, so, so some of us have gone astray? No, all have turned away. Everyone has gone astray after his own way. The original sin in the garden that, that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with was that if they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. The original sin is that of stretching out their hand to seek out their own divinity. And the account of scripture and of our own recent history shows just how far we fall short of that mark. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, like sheep without a shepherd. But the good shepherd has come to lead us. And not only that, Isaiah 53, 6 continues, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what Jesus accomplished on the cross was bearing our iniquity. Verse 8, that he was cut off out of the land of the living. So meaning he died, stricken for the transgression of my people. So he bore our iniquity unto death, for he was stricken for our transgression. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, we become the people of God. And our transgressions were dealt with fully on the cross. And we'll come back to Isaiah 53 a little bit later. So what's happening here? How and why is Jesus dying for you and for me? Well, remember from Mark 10, where Jesus says to the rich young man, no one is good. No one is good except God alone. And in the same chapter and strain of thought, Jesus teaches those with him, saying, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, and with this cultural understanding that, that, that the rich were blessed by God. We read on. And, and they were exceedingly astonished that he said this. And said to him, then who can be saved? If, if the people around us who have their lives together, have their, have their ducks in a row and, and, are, and are well off, and are doing well, they're living good lives then who can be saved if they can't be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible. With man it is impossible. Huh? It's impossible to be saved? You mean there's nothing I can do to, to be saved or to earn eternal salvation? But aren't I a good person? No, Jesus says, no one is good but God. As in the Sermon on the Mount, we see God looks at our hearts. And if we hate someone in our heart, Jesus says we're guilty of murder. If we even look at another person in lust, we're guilty of adultery in our heart. It's a matter of the heart, 
So no, we cannot earn our own salvation through just being good enough, doing enough good deeds, saying the right things, giving the right amount of money. No, all all of that falls short. It is all insufficient. We're bound by sin as we're we're bound by gravity. We can lift as hard as we can, as hard as we want on our boots, and we cannot lift our feet off of the ground because of the law of gravity. Our whole being is bound by it. So too our whole being is bound by our sin nature that we were born into. That is why we say in our heart, this world is not as it should be. It's broken. We don't need to be taught to lie, to cheat, to steal. We don't need to be taught to use violence to get our own way. No, in fact, we need to be taught the opposite. <laughs> we need to be taught there's a better and a higher way to live and, and to strive for. And, and yet, as we do that, we slip and fall along the way. But no matter our effort to, to do better, it, it, it can never be enough. No amount of good deeds in, in our own effort can overcome the amount of debt that we've accrued over our lifetime. Because it's a part of our nature. It's a problem of the heart. For as Jesus says, there's nothing you can do to save yourself because it's impossible with man. But he doesn't end there. He goes on. He says, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. So it must come from outside of ourselves. And that's where Jesus steps onto the scene saying, with God, all things are possible. And now we come to Mark chapter 15, verse 40, where, where just before we read how the Roman centurion, you know, seeing Jesus cry, cry out and breathe his last, and in such a way that he died, this Roman centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. And with that statement, we have echoing in our mind, along with all things are possible with God. We read in verse 40 of 15, there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother, mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. So, so this is most likely Mary, the mother of James, and the younger, and of Joseph. It's most likely Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, James and Joseph are his half-brothers, as Mark 6 tells us, uh, half because he had a miraculous virgin birth, um, and only then did Joseph consummate the marriage, as Luke tells us. But now Mark's focus is on Jesus as God's son, not as Jesus as Mary's son. For it is vital to the atonement to see that Jesus is God in the flesh. But yes, Mary is here at the crucifixion and witnessing the death of her son. And Salome as well, who is is likely uh, the sons of Zebedee's uh, mother, James and John. So she's there as well. Verse 41. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, we've got to pause here because up until this point in Mark's gospel account, we, we really don't hear much about the women following Jesus. It, it's the crowds and it's the 12 who followed Jesus. We don't hear about the many women who, who now we read while he was in Galilee followed him and ministered to him. And the many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, we remember hearing of Mary Magdalene, who anointed Jesus with the pure nard, who, who broke the alabaster jar and, pour, and poured this expensive ointment on his head, anointing his head. This ointment that, that Mark says cost a year's wages. She broke it and anointed him. But other than that, we don't hear a lot about the women being with 
the disciples, being with Jesus, ministering to him in Mark's gospel account. Mostly, we see that Mark is contrasting the selected 12 disciples or apostles with what true discipleship looks like. Okay, so, so we see them messing up time and time again where they doubt Jesus, they, they don't listen to Jesus, they argue with one another about who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus says to them when they're arguing, he says, if you want to become the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must become servant of all. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Martha's in the next room preparing dinner for all of them. It's interesting. So this is significant. And we see clearly how women had a leadership role in the early church. Not by title, but by example. You don't need a title to be a leader, not in the kingdom of God. For as Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become a servant of all. So these women were at the scourging and beatings and witnessed the mockings and the crucifixion. The men, the men had fled. They were all gone. But the women remained. The many unnamed women who served Jesus. It gives us a fuller picture, I think, of what the, the ministry of Jesus was like. It wasn't a bunch of stinky, unkept young guys camping out on a hillside, right? Sometimes it was. Sometimes it was. But often, there was a community of people around Jesus. And that means it's the difference between, you know, a bachelor pad campsite and home, right? Let's be real. There's a reason why God said it's not good for man to be alone, it's not good, <laughs> right? That's why I made Eve for Adam. The only reason that my hair is not down to my shoulders right now is because Joanna tells me to cut it every now and then. Okay, so <laughs> it's just not good. So Christianity has always had faithful women leaders. From the very beginning, we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn and Martha serving him. And in this moment, we see their strength and courage, which stemmed from their great love of Jesus. That's what it stemmed from. They are with him to the very end. Moving on, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, which is code for he believed in Jesus but wasn't supposed to, he took courage, he took courage, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So it was made certain that indeed Jesus had died. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So thus was fulfilled Isaiah 53, as we come back to it and read in verse 9 of Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So he was crucified and died between two criminals. And Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came and got his body and put his corpse in the expensive tomb carved out of rock for a rich man. So it's a pretty incredible prophetic fulfillment here. And then we read on in Isaiah 53, 9, how this happened to him, although, this happened although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he was the spotless and righteous one who was without sin, which is why he could atone for us as the perfect for the imperfect. 
And to do this, he took on flesh. And because he was God incarnate, his sacrifice was not limited to one-to-one. It was one as a ransom for many, says Jesus. And as Isaiah 53 ends, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. But he didn't end there. The story isn't over. Turn with me now as we close up Mark's gospel account to Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is where the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel account that have been found and studied end. And, and, and it's, your Bible probably will indicate that for you. And it's a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? Uh, and many believe it was meant to be just that. Jesus is not here, says the man dressed in, in, the, in the white robe. He is risen. He is risen. And the first witnesses were these women who came and found this big stone rolled away and an angel proclaiming the good news to them. But what, what do they do? They say nothing to anyone because they're afraid. See, women were not allowed to be witnesses at this time. Their testimony would have been suspect. And if, as some claim, Mark and Matthew and John and Luke and and Peter and Paul and on and on and on, plus 500 other witnesses who attested to seeing the risen Lord. If they're all making up the story, first, you have to explain how how their accounts of it all line up cohesively while not being verbatim of one another. They are separate accounts which all agree with one another, not as a rehearsed lie would, but as an account from multiple eyewitnesses who reported uh, separately and honestly uh, what they saw and heard, uh, even though it would eventually cost them their livelihood and their lives to bear witness to the resurrected Lord. The resurrection is so well supported, actually, uh, that many call into question, did he really die? Did he really die? Putting forth ideas like, you know, perhaps, you know, he passed out from the exertion and the loss of blood on the cross and they thought he was dead. But seriously, no one who goes through what Jesus went through gets up and walks away from it. Certainly they don't roll a giant stone out of the way. Uh, and he would most certainly die of dehydration before Sunday morning anyway. So no, his, his death was verified and even double-checked, as we see from Pilate with the centurion. Uh, this was not their first rodeo killing somebody. <laughs> so, so we're left to, to answer the question, do we believe the cohesive testimony of the New Testament authors and the hundreds of eyewitnesses? So here Mark leaves the reader astounded, but also asking, what now? What do we do now? 
what happens next? How, how do we respond to this? And we get these you know, answers from, from the other accounts that we have in the other gospel accounts in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. But we also have verses 9 through 20 right in front of us. Uh, and, and we'll see that from these verses, that these verses agree with the other accounts of Scripture. So it's not as if these verses should be rejected because they're inconsistent, uh, but rather it's given a little bit less credence as it seems to be an addition of somebody, you know, wanting to give Mark a more uh, clean and finished ending to it. But of course, uh, we don't know that for sure. It, we could have just lost uh, this last section on those early manuscripts and, and, and scholars don't know for sure. So it could be, could not be, but we're going to read it because it agrees with the rest of Scripture. And I think it's helpful for us to check it out. So verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, so speaking of Jesus here, uh, he rose not from sleep, but from the dead. Okay, <laughs> if you read that quick, it might sound like he rose from sleep. So when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him um, as they mourned and wept. So, so yes, the women were not frozen in fear and never telling anybody, uh, as Mark 16, 8 might, might suggest. No, after they saw the empty tomb, uh, they were scared. They made their way back to where they're staying. And then Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. So notice, he didn't first appear to Peter, James, or John, or even his mother, Mary, but first to Mary Magdalene. And had her go and tell the others. And listen to what happens, verse 11. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her... They would not believe it. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This woman, who he cast seven demons out of, he's having her bear witness to his resurrection. He's using the least and the humble to be his witness. He's turning things on their heads. Right? This, this is the new kingdom where, where Jesus is completely rejecting the systems of this world. And he's going to use the least to spread this good news. He's going to use the humble, not the proud, to be his ambassadors. This is his new kingdom. So he's rejecting the systems of the world, but he also overcame them through his death and his resurrection. So part of the cross and the resurrection is this idea of God stripping us of any ability to boast on our own. It is what he has done. It's what he has done. It's not what we have done. So we come to him only in humility that we are sinners in need of a savior, that we've all gone astray, that we need his forgiveness. So God is stripping us of all ability to boast so that we can only come to him in humility because it's his work. So now Mary Magdalene is no longer her old identity of a woman possessed by seven demons. No, in Christ, she is Mary, daughter of the king, inheritor of the kingdom of God. And he's using her as his witness to his disciples. Mark 16 goes on in verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. So, so they didn't recognize him. And, and we know this is the road to Emmaus that Luke gives us a lot of detail about, but because Jesus disguised himself, they, they, they didn't recognize him, but later they did. And verse 13 says, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them either. 
So again, the disciples, meaning the 11 remaining, minus Judas the betrayer, did not believe uh, the testimony of now two male witnesses, which by law would be enough to confirm a testimony. Then, verse 14, we read, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. They disbelieved the testimony, first of the woman, specifically Mary Magdalene, and then that of the two on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus rebuked them for that for their pride and for their disbelief of their trusted friends. And we know from John's account that Thomas, after hearing everyone's testimony of seeing Jesus, Thomas says, man, unless I see the marks in his hands and then put my fingers in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, you know, where the spear stabbed him in the side, I will never believe. So Jesus appeared to him in John chapter 20, verse 26. We read, eight days later, after Thomas had said this, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, And my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is you. That is me. But now what are we to do? Mark's account ends with this. Verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, this is the great commission now, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go and tell this good news. What's the good news? That Jesus has come and died for our sins, paying in full the price of our iniquity, and then rising again from the grave, conquering sin and death forevermore. So he holds the keys now. As he says, he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, for he has made a way for relationship with God which is why he can say in authority in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So in the apostles' ministry, all of these signs were confirmed and shown to be true. For Jesus, as John the Baptist said, gives us the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That now when we place our our faith in Christ... He gives us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to go and fulfill his calling to go into all the world and tell of this good news that Jesus is risen and we are forgiven through his work and death no longer has a hold over those who believe in him. Rather, we receive eternal life. Amen? Amen.
Thank you, Mark, for that gospel account and God for inspiring it. (laughs) Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and proven it to be true time and time again. God, by the prophecies that are fulfilled perfectly, by the beautiful ways that you reveal your truth to us, that the more we study it, the deeper we see it becomes. That, Lord, it's simple enough for a child to understand, but so deep that we can study it our entire lives and never plummet its depths. So, Lord, we, we thank you that you loved us first and that you sent your son to die for us so that we may be with you for all eternity and not just die, but also rise again and be the first of the resurrection so that we may also share in your resurrection. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.